This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, June 27, 2014. I'm Caleb Brown. Thomas Piketty's Capital in the 21st Century provides a wealth of data about the history of wealth and who earns it today, but his predictions about the future may be found wanting. Don Boudreau, a professor of economics at George Mason University and a Cato adjunct scholar, offers his thoughts. Big picture, what are the assumptions that underlie Piketty's argument that he doesn't really totally make clear? Oh, there are a few. One and the most troubling one for me is that wealth and prosperity are largely independent of human volition. These things grow independently of what what humans do. They, they, They do grow, but it's not because of the decisions that humans make economically. It's not because of uh, different economic institutions and changes in economic institutions. It's just this this glob of stuff that grows a little bit every year. Another assumption is that uh, uh, the, the main differences among people are, are uh, defined by how successfully some people grab more of this glob of stuff than other people. And the people who grab the largest chunk of glob, uh, larger chunks of glob than other people, uh, they will grow more prosperous over time, they and their descendants, than will people who grab smaller uh, globs of the uh, chunks of the glob. So for him, the, the role of entrepreneurship, the role of investment. It's largely absent. It, 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 it appears at best in the background. He says very little about it. It's not really an economics book. Uh, some other some reviewers have pointed this out. I, I don't recall the names offhand, but several reviewers have said it's more like an accounting book. Uh, he has this this enormously impressive set of data on income and wealth um, distributions over the course of more than a century in in, in many places, and over the course over the course of many different countries, including uh, obviously the United States. Uh, and he spends a lot of time uh, e- explaining trends in these in these in this wealth distribution and what he shows is according to his data at any rate is that in during what the french call the belle epoque the, the you know late 18th oh, excuse me late 19th century or very early 20th century just before world war 1 um, uh, the the inequality in monetary income and wealth distribution reached a peak it fell this inequality did uh, with war and depression. Uh, and since the 1970s, it has been increasing again, and it's approaching these all-time historic highs. And it, that trend disturbs him greatly. He believes that that this trend where the top 1% or the top 0.1% or top 0.01%, as they accumulate disproportionately more monetary wealth, uh, the, the people at the bottom whether it be the bottom 50%, bottom 10%, bottom 90%, the people who aren't in this super-rich class, uh, they will become more and more discontented and there will be a, uh, I think you use the word terrifying, a terrifying revolution unless something is done. And something to be done, of course, uh, is, uh, is confiscatory taxation. In comparing the situation we have today with those of more than a century ago and back, uh, he's talking about wealth these are different kinds of wealth and uh, different kinds of poverty. Yes. Oh, yeah. My, my biggest complaint with the book, there are people – I understand and I think it's, it's probably correct that there are some technical problems with his data gathering 
uh, in some cases, perhaps some serious technical problems with his, his, his data and with the interpretation of those data. My biggest problem with the book, though, is the assumption that monetary wealth or monetary income uh, uh, is as meaningful as he thinks it is. What ultimately matters is not how many dollars or pounds or euros you have in your bank account. What matters is what you can consume. This is something Adam Smith taught us. And he doesn't, un- pick, pick, pick it, he doesn't understand that lesson. It may be, let's grant, uh, let's grant that Piketty is correct, that since the 1970s, the top super-rich uh, elites in various capitalist countries have become increasingly more monetarily wealthy than have ever, anyone else. So the monetary inequality is expanding. That may be. Let's grant that. But that doesn't mean that people are economically more unequal. What matters is consumption. I believe it's pretty clear that consumption equalities have increased, not 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 uh, not decreased. I believe I don't believe that I believe that people are becoming more equal on a consumption basis. The things that ordinary Americans, even poor Americans, can today consume are things that were either not available at all, even say just fifty or forty years ago, to the super rich, uh, and in other cases were available only to the super rich, and this increasing ability of ordinary people to consume things uh, that in the past were, were uh, at best luxuries, I think really undermines his, his, his main thesis. It's not at all clear that increasing monetary inequalities will cause such discontent among ordinary people and poor people to cause these ordinary people and poor people to rise into a revolt. They're living better on a consumption basis. They're living even more equally to the richest people. The world's not perfect, but when you look at the world through Piketty's lens, it looks really bad because all he focuses on is what he has uh, uh, calculated exists in these, in these portfolios and bank accounts, and that's not ultimately what matters. When you draw a rising line and say this is the wealth of the richest and you separate that from the creation of that wealth from the decisions about investment, uh, it does make it a lot easier than to have that line just continue ad infinitum as if there is that, that relationship is not, is not real. Yeah, and it, it, it makes one a much more cavalier and blasé about the likely consequences of confiscatory uh, taxation. If wealth is growing largely independently of human action and volition and choices, well, okay, raise taxes and you won't, you won't do, much, do much, if anything, to discourage the growth of wealth. You will just redistribute the wealth. Uh, or, uh, but it should be pointed out that his concern – is not chiefly with redistribution, as I read him. I don't doubt that he would be in favor that he's in favor of it, but his emphasis isn't so much on taking from the rich and giving to the poor. His emphasis is on taking from the rich to make to stave the, off this revolution. To that stave off the revolution, his emphasis, and and you know, and to 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 tamp the fires of envy, which he, I suppose, is sure are burning in the hearts of 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 of, of the non-super rich. Uh, his emphasis overwhelmingly is on just destroying the monetary wealth or confiscating the monetary wealth of, of the super rich and less on improving the living standards 
of poor and ordinary people. I'm not saying he's opposed to that. That would be unfair. But that's not where his emphasis is. His emphasis is on reducing economic inequalities by knocking down the rich and not so much by raising even the monetary incomes of the poor. What does he have to say about redistribution, like philanthropic redistribution? What does he say about that? He says very little about philanthropic redistribution. Uh, his, his working assumption is that rich people, uh, they, 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 they get their portion, disproportionately large portion of the glob of wealth and they hang on to it. In fact, they don't even do much consumption. From time to time, conspicuous consumption arises in the book when it serves his rhetorical purposes. But overall, there's not much consumption that goes on by the rich. They're holding on to their globs of wealth and they're watching it grow, uh, as he says at one point th- through the translator, by itself. This wealth grows by itself. Uh, and uh, obviously, to the extent that people give money, that rich people give money away, to the extent that they consume, especially engage in the conspicuous consumption that's, that, that so many people d- dislike uh, and, and believe goes on. To that extent, well, the, the wealth is being consumed. It's not, it's not uh, being nurtured and growing. So this is a tension in his book. He, he had, uh, uh, one part of him wants, the, wants to, to tell a story of how all the non-rich are envying the super-rich. Uh, but you can't really envy someone whose wealth you don't see, whose wealth is not on display. Wealth in a bank account is not on display. Wealth in a, a stock brokerage account is not on display. Wealth that's on display is in a big fancy house and, 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 and private jets and, 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 and fancy automobiles and gold-plated jacuzzis. Uh, but to the extent that people buy these things, well, that reduces uh, the – ability of their wealth to grow. Uh, their wealth doesn't grow as fast as he would have it growing in his famous equ- now famous equation of R greater than, than G, the rate of growth of, of, of wealth uh, over the rate of growth of the economy. So there's this tension that he – not only that he does not resolve, he doesn't even seem to be aware of the tension. What is the role of, of public choice here? Uh, Piketty is arguing essentially for – very high rates of taxation and I believe essentially a global agreement that to the extent uh, such wealth disparities exist, it is incumbent upon all of these governments to work together to eliminate them. Where does public choice fit in? That's a good question. He's not, he's not – gives no sign of being aware of public choice. There's no mention of Jim Buchanan or Gordon Tullock, uh, for example, anywhere in the book. They're not mentioned in the in – the in, they're not cited in the index. Uh, he 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 does like a lot of people understand or believe he understands that well really rich people uh, are at risk of using their wealth to bend government policies to their ends but that's as far as his his any cynicism that he has about about government goes once you once you turn government uh, uh, into a redistributive machine or at least a a a, a tax the bazooka out of uh, the rich scheme, then government will be all good, all knowing, perfectly trustworthy. Uh, the, the, it's, it's an odd thing really that, that government is so untrustworthy now uh, because it can be bought and manipulated by the rich. But once we get rid of the rich buying and manipulating government, then government somehow m- miraculously becomes a, a public servant. And there's no explanation in, in, his, in his text about how this transformation, how this magical transformation might take place. Even in the early part of the 20th century, 
when we think about the the industrialists who uh, did a lot of work in terms of laying the groundwork for a whole lot of the wealth that we enjoy today, the wealth that they created was broadly speaking delivered to their customers in terms of uh, the price of oil, the price of all sorts of uh, basic commodities. And when you think of companies like uh, Walmart or other great sort of supply chains that exist in the United States, their margins are very low. Almost all of the uh, benefits that those companies create today go to the people who shop at those stores. Well, as I said, entrepreneurship and wealth creation don't really appear in his book to the extent that he is aware uh, – uh, as he is aware that, that obviously there's been a great wealth explosion over the past uh, 200 years, uh, it, it, it's more the result of, of exogenous forces, of these, these outside forces of technology happens. It's not, it's not the result of entrepreneurial decisions. It's not the result of good economic institutions. It's not the result of a bourgeois culture that encourages innovation and the respect for property rights and, 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 and working hard. Now, now he, seem, he has to be cognizant of those institutions' existence. It's perhaps that he's just taking them for granted. He may or may not – he may be cognizant of them, but they play no role in his analysis. Uh, the rich people show up as, 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 as rentiers, as, as he puts it, as just – as people who claim wealth. Throughout his discussion, wealth and income are always spoken of. Again, this is in the English translation from the original French, but that it's always spoken of as being taken by the rich, being given to the rich, being distributed, uh, uh, being dispersed, never created, produced. Uh, it's it, the the any activity that rich people might engage in to increase their wealth, it's always in the form of just taking it, presumably from someone else, not never creating it or producing it. So I'm sure if he were here and put on the spot, he would have to admit, well, yes, yes, John D. Rockefeller and Andrew Carnegie and Gustavus Swift, they created something. But I think he'd be reluctant to do that because that's, that's not part of his narrative. Wealth for him is by and large uh, this socially created glob of stuff that doesn't really depend upon individual human beings uh, and that's why we need the government to more fairly uh, distribute it or at least keep some uh, especially crafty and clever human beings uh, uh, from accumulating too much because that gener that ultimately leads to uh, unsavory amounts of inequality in his view. Don Boudreau blogs at Cafe Hayek and is a professor of economics at George Mason University. Read more about wealth and inequality at our website, cato.org.